This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Einstein. James Dean. Brooklyn's got a winning team. Davy Crackett. Peter Pan. Oh, Neverland. Jay and Barry. Wendy. Always a boy, never a man. Just like you, Tom Fordyce. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 46 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that is history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and the moments that shaped our world, the ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Casey, shall we start some fires? Oh, I cannot wait. So today we are talking about all things to do with Peter Pan. And Peter Pan is a very formative influence in my childhood because I had the Peter Pan picture book, which belonged to my mother, and it was published in 1931. And so it actually was her copy from when she was a child. So it was a little tattered. It was a little falling apart at the seams. And the thing that was so magical about it It had the most ravishing illustrations by Roy Best. And I looked him up, and it turns out that he was best known for painting pin-up calendar girls. So he was a bit of a cheesecake artist. But it (laughs) means that Peter Pan and Tinkerbell and Wendy and the Lost Boys and Captain Hook just had this luminosity and, you know, beautiful pink cheeks and uh, just glowiness, just shiny hair and just absolutely magical. So that's my only experience of Peter Pan. I never saw the Disney film. What? I, I never you know, read the original book, which <gasps> I understand now is kind of dark and strange. What about you? I think, so I did watch the Disney film, Katie, when I was younger and was terrified of Captain Hook. Because of the hook? Mainly the hook. The hook isn't so good. No, he's menacing. The crocodile, um, which pursues Captain Hook, I should have been scared of because it was a crocodile, but because it's trying to eat Captain Hook throughout the whole film, yeah. the crocodile was fine. Um, the other thing I remember was those two main things about Peter Pan, which is, number one, flight. What a great idea. Yes. Number two, he can imagine things into existence. If you'd said the eight-year-old me, what two things would you most like to be able to do? I would say, number one, flying. Number two, create things in the real world that are in my head. And that's all because of Peter Pan. But here's my question for you. Number three, did you not think that Tinkerbell was hot? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a whole lot of complicated stuff going on with Tinkerbell, Wendy, Peter. Who fancies who? Who's allowed to fancy who? Who's friends? Who's stitching the other one up? It's yeah, quite dark. It's, it, there's, a, there's a crucible of uh, intrigue and Lust. frisson. Well, we can flap our gums all the live long day and come to no conclusions because between us we know but a little. And that is why today we are so fortunate to have the person who is the Peter Pan director from Great Ormond Street Hospital Children's Charity. She is Sarah Wolf, and she's in charge of all things Peter Pan at the hospital, public speaking, fundraising. She's involved in any performances of Peter Pan in the UK because apparently any funds raised go to the hospital. Hello, Sarah. Hi. So how did this happen? Why? How come you guys are raking in the Peter Pan ducats? We're very lucky. Yes, you are. Um, 
J.M. Barry, when he first moved to London, he was Scottish originally. He's the author. He is the author of the play and the book. And he moved to London and lived very close to the hospital and became um, aware of what it did. It was looking after sick children at the time. It had 10 beds. It was a very small institution. But obviously, it was always growing and it was always looking for donors to help it grow. And I think we have records that he attended a fundraiser in 1901. So his relationship with the hospital started, in fact, before he even wrote Peter Pan. Oh. Um, And he carried on being interested in the hospital, supporting the hospital financially here and there. And in 1929, he was asked to sit on a committee to um, figure out best ways to fundraise. And he declined. But he then turned around a couple of months later and gave them the rights to Peter Pan. So from 1929 onwards, which was about eight years before he died, all of the um, royalties that were created by performances and book sales from Peter Pan came to support the hospital. And that's been the case ever since. Casey, I'm liking the cut of this man's jib already. Yes, yes, very much so. I want to get into the origins of the Peter Pan story. Um, But maybe before we even do that, What's the score with J.M. Barry? Because he was a successful author in his lifetime, which isn't always the case. And he had a kind of a challenging upbringing. So can you talk us through that? Challenging would be a very good description of it. So he ha- he was one of 10 siblings. His father was a handloom weaver and he grew up in Kiramore in Scotland. Um, they weren't kind of poverty stricken and destitute, but um, obviously they weren't wealthy and they were very, very ambitious academically for all their children. So he had his eldest brother um, got a scholarship, got a degree in classics, um, went on to found his own school and so on. Um, James was the sixth of the children. And when he was six, his um, the second eldest brother, David, who was 13 at the time, died in a tragic skating accident, ice skating accident. And this event affected his mother so deeply that she kind of became a shadow of her former self. I mean, she took to her bed. She Nothing was ever the same in that house. David had been her favourite. He'd had, you know, all the academic gifts his elder brother had had. He was charming. He was handsome. And she was devastated. Um, And obviously, for a six-year-old James Barry, when your mother suddenly disappears from the picture in that way, it's absolutely shocking and he spent a very long time trying to entice his mother out of her grief one of the ways that he did that was that he tried to kind of inhabit the character of the brother who had died and he dressed up in his clothes he he recalls this amazing incident where he dressed up in his clothes and he'd been practicing to whistle like David because his mother had said that David always had this cheery whistle and that he went into the room into her bedroom and he stood there and he said look at me and he sort of stood and did the whistle and in his recollection of it he says how it must have hurt her and I think that kind of you know later on understanding how hard it was for her but 
as a child, having no conception of that, um, this kind of war between, you know, it's, it's sort of the birth of this war between adulthood and childhood and lost innocence and, you know, all of that stuff. And a, a boy who doesn't get to grow up. A boy who always remains 13. And I think he felt that his mother took comfort in the idea that David would always be this perfect child, you know, never ravaged by age or anything to come. Gosh, it's so, you can just see the setup there because he's obviously somebody who wants to bring pleasure to people. And apparently he always had a talent for storytelling. And, you know, he he has this idea that he can perhaps bring joy to his own mother and uh, he doesn't succeed. And it must create a whole soup of emotions where he's uh, perhaps even resentful of of his mother for, for withholding love from him. Yeah, and I think that must have been there, but it was very. I think he just he says at first he was jealous of how of her grief. Yeah. Um, but then he tried to kind of win her over, yeah. and although that that must have you know been part of all these complex emotions, she was a very very important figure. You know, in the whole of the rest of um, his life, she lived for another twenty nine years. She shared with him all the stories about her girlhood. And the picture that she painted of this kind of very innocent, joyous childhood in the countryside with, you know, is very, very prominent in a lot of the storytelling that he went on to do. This idea of the mother, his mother as a child, but also as a mother. It's very kind of evocative of the Wendy character, obviously. Um, So, yeah, she was a huge influence on, on his work always. The first mention that we get of Peter Pan, Sarah, is there's a chapter in a book that he writes, which is actually for adults, called The Little White Bird, and that's in 1902. And then a couple of years later, he writes the stage play. But he has a lot of failures on his way to writing his massive hit, doesn't he? He has a lot of years of trying to be a success as an author and a playwright and failing. He does have a bit of failure. He had he had a, a short play that was performed in London, didn't kind of go anywhere. Um, but actually, before he wrote Peter Pan and before he wrote The Little White Bird, he created these stories called um, the Thrums stories, and they were a huge success. I mean, absolutely like unbelievable. Both sides of the Atlantic, people were clamouring for them, all based on his mother's childhood. Um, and so he had had quite a bit of success, and he had been writing plays for a while. But yes, you know, obviously, I think for most people, if you wrote a Peter Pan, it's going to knock everything else you've done into a cocked hat. And, and his other plays are worth revisiting. You know, they're really interesting. But um, obviously, Peter Pan is an exceptional piece of work. And does it take off straight away? Does it capture the hearts of the nation from the the, the first few uh, two or three months it's performed? It, I think it captured them from the first night it was performed. They had a they had a plan that when Peter asks clap if you believe in fairies, they were asking the orchestra to kind of start the clapping because they were worried that nobody would. And the leading actress recalls you know, how everybody clapped immediately, the children and the adults and everyone was clapping and how moved they all were that this had reached, the, you know, re- really reached the audience. So, yes, it was an instant hit. Talk us through just the some of the key points of the Peter Pan story for anyone who isn't familiar with it. For anyone who isn't familiar with <laughs> it? Sacrilege. Um, the Darling family are a... Uh, you know, relatively wealthy 
family living in London, three children, two parents, and a dog who is their nanny who runs the nursery, who is based on um, Barry's own dog, which was a St. Bernard called Porthos. Um, And the dog was always played by an actor dressed up. One night, a mysterious boy appears at the window of the nursery, which is several floors up. Um, He's flown in to look for his shadow. And Wendy, who's the eldest daughter, discovers him crying over the fact that he can't get his shadow to stick to his feet. Um, Mm -hmm. And she, they discuss where has he come from why is he there and he tells her he lives in a place called Neverland um, and to get there you have to fly and he teaches her and her siblings to fly and they fly off to Neverland um, where they encounter adventures and pirates and um, eventually Wendy realizes that she cannot stay in Neverland and she returns home with all of the lost boys who are Peter's compatriots um, and but Peter decides to stay in Neverland because he does not want to grow up. I feel like it's got real emotional truth to it. This idea that um, you want to strike out from your parents, you want your freedom as a child and that you realize actually, there's more to life, you know, there's more to life than just hedonism. And then and yet some of us feel like, no, I want to just stay in this bubble of being an innocent and being a child. So it's all of these themes that I think resonate with a lot of us. Mm, And I think for him, because he never really felt as though he did inhabit his own adulthood. I mean, he was married, but um, they never had any children. And, you know, they eventually divorced and well, they were celibate, clearly, weren't they? It, it appears so. I mean, you know, she, um, apparently his wife confided in a friend that their honeymoon was a nightmare and he bought her the dog, the, the puppy, on the honeymoon. Oh, gosh. So it doesn't, it doesn't suggest that things were going cute terribly puppy. well. <laughs> yeah, a really cute puppy, which then decided it preferred him to her eventually. So um, that wasn't ideal. Um, and also the fact that he never grew taller than... He was very small. Five foot, yes. Five foot? Five foot, apparently. Whoa! Now, is that small even for Victorians? It would have been smaller than us. It was small. Tom, I'm five foot tall. (laughs) You're a J.M. Barry. You're a whole J.M. Barry. I'm a whole J.M. Barry. You could fit a whole J.M. Barry in me. So it looks, Sarah, like there is a fair amount of either his own experiences or his own desires that, that leak into the story of Peter Pan. Yes, I think definitely. And one of the things in the book, one of the kind of famous lines is there never was a happier family until the coming of Peter Pan, referring to the Darling family. And there's a way of reading that that's about, you know, his own personal life because he made terribly good friends with this family, the Llewellyn Davis family, who had a number of sons. Um, and 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 it's almost a kind of, shadowing of that relationship that they were this happy family and he arrived um what to make things worse well or it coincided it coincided with things going wrong maybe i think it's not so much that things went wrong as that he he inserted himself into their lives in a way that is wonderful and you know ended up being you know in many ways a huge benefit and it was Nico who was one of the Llewellyn Davis brothers who said later that Barry was the best company he'd ever kept and um, he was real really close with all the boys but there is a sense in which you know you can imagine you have your family unit your wife your children and suddenly this 
guy appears who seems to be going on walks with your children all the time and turning up at your house uninvited and holidaying just down the street from you. It's not... It's not usual. No. Um, no. And I think most people, certainly, you know, the the, um, the feeling is that, the, that their father, Arthur, struggled with that kind of intrusion. And obviously there's something both playful and kind of a little bit dark about the reference in the book in, in the sense that it does slightly reflect his behavior. Um, so the father in the book is like a little uh, less sensitively drawn or l- less... A um, caricature, one might call him. Yes, really? yes. So he, um, yes. So, so um, he's like, he's not so, um, uh, what's the word? Sympathetic. Sympathetic is the word. Yeah, so he's not as sympathetically drawn, I guess, uh, in the book. So he is doing what? Telling stories to the kids? Is he sort of like the the fun, the bringer of fun for the, the children? The bringer of fun, the fun uncle. I think it was... Um, Andrew Birkin, who wrote this brilliant book called Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, um, who said that children didn't find him to be a puzzle, that when he was with them, he didn't have to be a puzzle. He could just be himself, whereas adults often found him quite difficult to understand. Um, And so I think that sense of freedom that he had with them Ah. and the freedom of imagination and the freedom to play and, you know, all of those things um, were really important. He doesn't do that thing that some authors do where they make the or doesn't appear to do the thing that authors sometimes do which is to make the main protagonist in their fictional work pretty reflective of themselves because Peter Pan is not really a hero in the in the sort of pure sense is he because he has some of the less enjoyable characteristics of a child in that he can be quite self-centered he can be quite capricious cruel yeah, I think there's a line in the in the book. You know, if this will go on as long as children are gay and heartless, um, and I think that is very much you know part of again the appeal and, and the kind of longevity of the character is that he's not Mr. Perfect. You know, quite the opposite, and there is a lot of cruelty um, and certainly cockiness in his behavior. Um, and I don't know that Barry didn't actually feel like that was in some way a reflection oh, okay. of him. I mean, you know, he he married this woman kind of knowing that he didn't want to be married. I mean, he wrote in his notebook when he was at university, dreamt I was married, woke up screaming. Um, so it's not. this is not a guy who kind of is, you know, fixed to be a fantastic husband. Mm. And I think that he did know that he was a pretty selfish kind of guy. Mm. Um, and I think that the complexity of Peter Pan is in that, that joyfulness and, and that sense of daring and fun. But you know, you can never get close and I think that's how he felt that he was always alone he's quite anarchic Peter Pan that's kind of the appeal of him Mm. is that where the pan comes from because pan in sort of pagan mythology is quite playful and mischievous isn't he yes and mercurial yeah exactly right let's just take a little breather there and have some ads and we'll be back in a moment Hello, it's me again. I'm just going to interrupt the history scene to tell you about this other podcast you could check out, because I'm on it. I'm cheating on fire. It's called Dot Com, and it's the documentary series about the people of the Internet. And it starts with Wikipedia. Yeah, sure, it's just a little website, but it's not. Who are these people? The faces behind the screen? The brains behind the words? A place where people can come together and talk about the things that are important to them, we've just found a way in the wiki universe to do that. 
This is a hidden world, and it is fascinating. So if you're digging the fire, you will love this. I mean, how could Wikipedia not be corrupt at this point? Search for .com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe now. How? So the original book, which I have yet to read, and I really want to, I understand it's filled with fairy orgies and Lord of the Fly-style violence. (laughs) Smile on your face, Katie. (laughs) I'm not sure that it's filled with fairy orgies. There's a fairy orgy mention that there was a fairy, um, let's see the line. Is a fairy orgy the same as a non-fairy orgy, though? (laughs) is Is it a separate... Are the rules different? Or is it just an orgy of fairies because there are so many of them? Yeah, and maybe they're feasting on food. (laughs) So, Sarah, you're doubting my uh, account of the fairy orgy, but the line from the book is, after a time he fell asleep and some unsteady fairies had to climb over him on their way home from an orgy. Any of the other boy obstructing the fairy path at night would have been mischiefed, but they just tweaked Peter's nose and passed on. Uh, I think this might be an interpretive matter. I had always thought that the orgy there in reference was more of a kind of debauched evening of drinking. Bacchanalia, exactly. We're We're not bumping uglies, is that what you're saying? We're just having like a little sip of the grape. I never thought of it that way. Let's put it, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, there's potential there for all sorts of mischief. But certainly the book is, from what I gather, um, a little more... Uh, brutal than what I would have been led to believe from the Disney treatment. So there, Peter is very capricious. He punishes the lost boys. He's quite happy to threaten to kill people, if not just out and out kill people. He seems a little bit of a psychopath to me. <laughs> um, he stalks and kidnaps Wendy and her brothers. He forces them on that long, dangerous flight to Neverland because the idea is that if they fall asleep in midair, they'll plunge from the sky and die. Um, he's happy to kill when necessary, when the Lost Boys have the temerity to age. Uh, He shows up a few more times after Wendy goes back home. He Mm -hmm. shows up to, like, say he needs spring cleaning. I don't know if that's a euphemism (laughs) or or if he needs a maid. I don't know what's going on. So I don't know if this is just um, J.M. Barry's idea of the standard characteristics of a self-obsessed little kid or maybe just a portrait of himself. I don't know either. I mean, I think it is an incredibly dark book. And I think most people, especially, you know, have their first contact with it is usually the Disney cartoon or in America, quite often the Mary Martin musical. Um, And so, yes, most people think of it as a lighthearted tale of um, lots of children having great fun in a fantasy place called Neverland. Um, And actually... There is a lot of darkness in in the book. I mean, it's a really complex piece of literature. And I think, you know, this is one of the reasons why people always come back to it and want to reinvent it and adapt it, because every adult kind of goes back and is shocked by what's actually there. Um, I mean, I love the fact that um, they get into very adult emotions as well, like Tinkerbell is jealous of Wendy. Super jealous. Yeah, he gets she gets the Lost Boys to shoot. Wendy with an arrow. Wendy keeps getting shanghaied around to be a mother for everybody. I think that's quite odd as well. Like I guess that's to do with Barry's preoccupation with wanting uh, an emotionally available mother. Mm. But, you know, the pirates want her to be the mother and the Lost Boys want her to be 
the mother. I mean, apparently, originally, when they did the play, there was the talk of, or Barry wanted, the character playing Mrs. Darling to double as Hook. It wasn't intended oh. for the character playing Mr. Darling to double as Hook. And the oh. subtitle for the play was originally The Boy Who Hated Mothers. <gasps> and there was this idea Paging that... Dr. Freud. <laughs> exactly. Like two sides of the coin. Motherhood as this kind of perfect, nurturing kind of I- ideal. And also motherhood as a terrifying... Um, you know, proposition where, you know, damage could be inflicted. Um, But apparently, De Maurier was so um, keen to play Hook that he managed to talk Barry round. And that's why it was thereafter traditionally um, that Mr. Darling played Hook. Time to revisit that and do it the original way, the way it was intended. And then when the Disney film comes out in 1953, Sarah, is it just as popular as the play had been half a century before? I mean, I think it was popular in terms of people going to the cinema. Obviously, there was incredible appetite to see this kind of this kind of movie. Um, the critics were a little sniffy about were they? it. They were. The Which New York aspects? New York Times said it has the story, but not the spirit of Peter Pan, as oh. conceived by the author and played on stage. Which is absolutely true, so fair enough. Um, and they, uh, one of them said that the technical features, such as the synchronisation of the lips, was very good, oh. which is slightly damning by faint praise. It's really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, good lip work. So I think, you know, it's, it's not quite the reception that the play had, but obviously, you know, it, it has endured and it's still really popular. There's a few things which they Disneyfy clearly because it's Disney. And one thing I remember, Katie, is that, um, and I hope this isn't a plot spoiler, at no mm-hmm. point does TikTok the crocodile actually eat Captain Hook. Mm. Like clearly he's taken his hand off, which is why Captain Hook has a hook, which has given him a taste for Hook. But the closing scene is him sort of chasing Captain Hook and Captain Hook gets stuck in him and then fights his way out, blah, blah, blah. And they chase him around the sea. And as a child, I remember really wanting to see Captain Hook actually get eaten because then you knew he, he was gone. He couldn't come and get you. Yeah. You were always really terrorized yeah. by whether it was the wolf and Peter and the oh, wolf. Oh, God, yeah. Oh. Remember when we talked oh, yeah, about that? The F episode. You're a very sensitive individual. Had a lot of nightmares, Katie. <laughs> You're very susceptible to pop culture, it would appear. And speaking of susceptible to pop culture, the Llewellyn Davis boys, how did they fare after a lifetime of being associated with uh, James Berry and the work Peter Pan? Well, there was a lot of tragedy um, in the Llewellyn Davis family. I mean, their parents both died pretty young in their 40s. Arthur died first, and when Sylvia died, the boys became wards of J.M. Barry. Which is an interesting little thing to look at. We need to pause and consider this because apparently Barry was not in the will to do this job. What do we know about this? There's a debate and there was a a second will was found um, not long after her death in which he he said that she had specified him as the person who was going to help Mary Hodgson, who was their nanny for many years, um, look after the children. Um, there's debate about whether it said Jimmy, James Barry, or Jenny, mm-hmm. her sister. 
Right. Ah. But one of the things that was very clear was that no one in either family had the capacity to take all five children. And one of the things that Sylvia had always been very clear about was that she wanted all five children to stay together. So as the person who had the means, the time and the desire to look after these children in their own home in in London, um, it was sort of pretty quickly agreed that that Barry was the right person for this for mm. this task. They did have other other guardians as well, but he was their primary carer. And so what became of the children then? So the the five boys unfortunately did not have a sort of optimistic fun future ahead of them. The First World War came, you know, not that long after and George died in Flanders in 1915. Then Michael drowned in 1921. There's sort of ambiguity over how it happened, but he was swimming with a friend and, um, you know, neither of them um, survived the swim. So that was awful. Um, And then Peter, who became a publisher in his own right as an adult, committed suicide in 1960. He threw himself in front of a train at Sloan Square Station, um, which is devastating. Apparently, he was suffering from ill health. He was an alcoholic and his wife and all... his wife had Huntington's and all three children had inherited the gene. So it was really um, terrible. (laughs) Um, it's, It's a hard upbringing losing your parents it's it's hard to be pe- the peter of peter pan you know yeah. and I, he can never really escape that people were always every time there was a piece of news about him or about the show he would get sort of dragged into it and you know that's a really hard thing to to live with but i think that there was a lot of difficult stuff in his life um obviously so circling back to the thing the line from peter pan about the darlings being a happy family until peter pan showed up it seems like this was borne out by James Barry's experience. Yes, and I suppose the debate is all of this tragedy would have happened probably anyway. I mean, both of the parents would have died. And if they hadn't had Barry, what would have become of them? Sure. So, you know, it's sort of, you know, you can never know the path that wasn't taken. I feel, Casey, that I thought this was going to be, and it has been a really interesting episode but for a film and a book which you associate with fun and laughter and magic there is a lot of darkness with this story well i have renewed respect for this work because i think i had just written it off as a bit of disney fluff and finding out that it has this weight and this gravitas and heaviness and emotional honesty um which does include darkness i think that makes it a more salient piece of work that's that has more resonance so no wonder it stood the test of time yeah and i think that one of the interesting things about its inclusion in the song um is that it could well be that that is you know because of the book or the play that he was exposed to or it could be the disney film but also um in 1955 the mary martin musical was live telecast on nbc and that was like a huge thing in in, in america a whole generation of children that was their first experience of peter pan and the timing would fit you know very well for that so and I feel as though, especially because Disneyland comes up later in that line, you know, he's not going to do two Disney things. So I sort of feel as though it's 
probable that the influence for that coming into the song was him sitting there as a child, as so many children did, and on all on the same night seeing this incredible yes. you know, live telecast wow. of, um, of the Mary Martin Although musical. you say he wouldn't do two Disneylands. He did four baseballs. <laughs> so once he gets a bee in his bonnet, he is buzzing with that stuff. <laughs> There's so many tantalizing themes in Peter Pan. Have they left a legacy? I think that... It's, you know, the original work is so incredibly complex and surprisingly dark. And I think when you revisit it, especially as an adult, we, you know, so much of it just flies over your head as a child. Sure. You just kind of pick out the fun bits. Um, but there's just this incredible sense of loss and longing and yearning that all of the characters to some extent experience. You know, Peter, he, he doesn't want to grow up, but but what does that mean? You know, in real terms, if you don't grow up, you know, right. it's the tragedy of the loss of of Barry's brother. It's, you know, always being selfish and alone. It's, you know, it's so many different things. You know, Wendy wants to be a grown-up woman. She wants to have children of her own, but that means she can never go back to Neverland. So there's oh. always this sense of sort of what you want being just over the horizon in a way. And it's, also sacrifice, like loss and sacrifice. And yeah. you have to, there's always trade-offs, which yes. is kind of the story of being an adult. Exactly. You can't have it all. And I suppose, Sarah, there is a really happy ending in the fact that all Jay and Barry's work on Peter Pan has made a huge difference to the lives of thousands and thousands of children. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the gift that he gave to the hospital was completely unprecedented. I think it's the only case where a writer in his own lifetime has gifted his most valuable work to a completely charitable organisation. And the hospital um, obviously benefited hugely from that, from the original films, from all of the stage productions and all of the books. So even though the work is in the public domain and continues to be reinvented and continues to be adapted, the uh, royalties and uh, ticket sales and book sales still give Great Ormond Street Hospital charity an important piece of income. It's obviously a tiny drop in the ocean of what a charity you know, like that needs to raise now. I mean, the hospital is a completely different organisation than it was in 1929. But every single penny that, that we receive from Peter Pan goes to fund research. It goes to fund state-of-the-art equipment. It goes to support patients and families with things like our play team and parent accommodation. So parents get to stay very close to the hospital while their children are being treated. And it also helps to do essential rebuilding and refurbishment in the hospital, which is um, a really important part of what we do. And do you see when you talk to children in the hospital about Peter Pan and they hear the story. Do you see the story still working for children of today's generation in the way that it did for children of previous generations? I think one of the great things about it is that it's because it's always being reinvented, there's always a version that speaks to a new generation. So, you know, when I was a child, I was five years old, I was taken to see Peter Pan at the RSC and with Mark Rylance, I just remember it being magic. I mean, you can imagine Mark Rylance is not a bad actor at all. Um, And I remember being taken back the following year, 1984, and feeling absolutely bereft and coming out of the theatre and saying to my parents, where's Peter gone? (laughs) 
<laughs> because they had replaced him with another actor. Um, so to me, that's the quintessential Peter. You know, a few years ago, there was an ITV two-part adaptation which actually bookended the story in in the hospital. So there was, you know, it was set on a hospital ward and someone was telling her sibling reading the story to her sibling and that was how they bookended the adaptation and that was a really lovely way into it as well and you know helps keep it current so I think there's always a version that's going to speak to children at any time. Sarah thank you so much for coming on the show it's been great having you on and you do have the single greatest job title of any of our guests thus far. Yeah what do your business cards look like? It's pretty, they they have a little picture of Peter Pan on them, and uh, it is it is a wonderful job title. It's the most niche job in the entire world, oh. and a complete accident that um that it found me. But I'm really glad it did. So I loved everything Sarah was saying about how there's that tug of war between wanting to stay a child forever and being in that little glowy bubble of joy and then but how isolating it is as well i think before when i've thought about the legend of peter pan it's been from the perspective of when you're a child as you say do you want to grow up sometimes you want to be free of your parents sometimes you want to fly out the window and other times you want to fly back but now i'm a father you have this thing with your kids where you sometimes want to freeze them in time (laughs) <laughs> because you love the age they are, yeah. but you realise you can't. The point where your eldest child first shrugs your arm off their shoulders, oh. which they've got to do because they, oh. they're not yours, you're just looking after them. But a little part of you falls <laughs> apart when they do that. <laughs> and you want them to be children, but you don't because the whole point of being a parent is to, at some point, release them into the big, bad, wide world. Yeah, you're the custodian. You've got to let them go. You've oh, got to let them gosh. go. Um Next week, Katie, we have an episode which both of us are looking forward to. Massive name, massive topic. Uh-huh. Elvis. <laughs> yes, Elvis Presley, Elvis the pelvis. The Memphis Flash. Is that what he's called? Which makes him sound like a cat burglar. He sounds like, you know what, apparently he modelled his look after Captain Marvel Jr. Is that even a character? Not that I know. He was concerned that he had a pencil neck, and that's why he wore those big, oh, really? fat, high collars. No one likes a pencil neck. <laughs> and surely if you've got a face above your pencil neck like Elvis, no one's looking at the pencil neck. No, no. You're just looking at that face. Oh, for sure. Well, if you're struggling to wait like Katie <laughs> and me for Elvis next week, here's an idea. Oh, yeah. We've got a different podcast you can fill your boots with. Oh. It is Alan Cummings Shelves. Join the wonderful actor Alan Cumming as he takes you through the stories of his life, through the most random and most interesting objects on his shelves. Does he want us to clean those shelves? Do we have to do any dusting? I hope not. He's joined by some amazing friends. He's got Sir Ian McKellen joining him to talk about a dog collar. I don't know if that's something that Ian McKellen enjoys wearing (laughs) or perhaps belong to a dog, but we'll find out. And Cindy Lauper helps him piece together the story of a pair of leather gloves. Ooh la la. And also, Katie, Alan is Mr. Broadway, so if you've enjoyed today's episode about the fantastical world of Peter Pan, you will love Alan. Oh, I like I like how you're selling us on that. <laughs> the stories are hilarious, so go and search for Alan Cummings Shelves on your podcast app. And listen, maybe while you're following Alan, you'd like to follow us. Yes. And subscribe, he Why said not? in a slightly threatening voice. I'm terrified. You can also find us on social media at Spread That Fire. Email us, get in touch fire 
at crowdnetwork.co.uk. I'm just looking at my inbox. I'm waiting for it to fill right up with correspondence. So get busy, people. Get busy. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.